0: Yeah, well, let, let's dig in. Hello, everybody. I'm David Cooks, and I tell you what, we, we know that paralysis can take on many forms. It can be physical like mine. It can, can be something anything you put your mind to. And what we try to do is feature stories that go from difficult places to fulfilling purpose. What seems impossible. Our guest today is a fantastic guy. From the time he was eight years old, he knew he wanted to work for Nike. He wanted to make shoes. It may knock you down, but don't let it stop you. His story is inspiring. His motivation and his perseverance is second to none. When you lose, you learn.
1: And getting cut just did nothing to me but say, Nike doubts that I can do this. And that that doubt or those rejection letters was nothing more than fuel to the fire got so much to give a
0: lot of life to live you must go from paralysis to purpose get your pen and paper out yeah i'm taking notes paralysis to purpose hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of paralysis to purpose the podcast i'm your host david cooks our guest today is a fantastic guy He works for Nike and is responsible for the hands-free shoe, and we'll talk about what that means later on. But from the time he was eight years old, he knew he wanted to work for Nike, which is amazing. He wanted to make shoes. You don't hear that very often, uh, but he was able to get there. We're going to talk about his journey uh, and getting there. But along the way, um, he was an, an accomplished athlete played football and basketball in high school, Uh, went on to have a successful career in college. And he did all of that without being born with a left arm. His story is inspiring. His motivation and his perseverance is second to none. And it's indeed a pleasure uh, for me to have as a guest today on our podcast, Richard Ramsey, all the way from Portland, Oregon. Uh, David, thanks
1: for having me. Really appreciate it. Um, really really looking forward to this next uh, little bit of time together.
0: Yeah. So um, let, let's just dig right in right away. Your social media handle is The one Arm Kid. Um, <laughs> and so you've been that your entire life. Let's just talk about your childhood for a moment. Uh, even before you started playing uh, sports in grade school, being born with a, a physical challenge, What was that like for you as a child let's talk about how your your family and your parents uh helped you navigate at a a very young age because we know that kids can be really rough for sure
1: um yeah you know i was i was born and um prior to being born my parents would go uh get ultrasounds and uh you name it and according to the doctors i had 10 fingers, 10 toes. I was a quote unquote normal baby. And on the day that I was born, the doctors l- looked at each other and immediately rushed me away from, from my mom. Uh, my dad was in the delivery room and he heard them say that there's a, there's a problem. Um, and the, the doctor told my dad that I was only born with one arm and so of course my dad went over and told my mom and they were asked what they wanted to do and my my dad was like what do you mean what do you mean what do we want to do like that was just that was just it i was just a a, a little baby with with one arm and that was it of course growing up though my parents saw me as just a normal a normal boy with one arm not everyone did bullies then were slightly different than bullies now though though they definitely existed um i was i was bullied when i was in in uh, first grade and a a little boy had what what we all call an outie belly button and if you could see my arm right now you could see that i've got this um i guess little bump on the end of my arm that would have been the the rest of the growth of of my arm and he thought it looked just like his audi belly button so he called me two belly button boy and um you know looking back at it it's like why did i ever even think twice about being called two belly button boy but of course um i told i told mama bear at home and uh, Mama Bear turned it, turned into Mama Bear, um, and of course, that next day she marched right into that classroom. Uh, she talked to the teacher. That conversation, of course, led the parents of the other boy to sit down with my parents, with both of us there, and we talked it out. Um, and fortunately, that
0: was uh, that was the the last I was
1: bullied for for quite some time,
0: at least so so it's important just to talk a little bit about that because I think um, the older we get we forget how impactful it is to be a child, mm-hmm. a young child that may have some sort of difference and to be made fun of and how that really can make a difference in the life of that young young person. Um and so thank thanks for sharing that story and they, and thank you thank thank your mom for addressing it right away. Yeah. You know, and and, and coming in and and dealing and having that tough conversation. I think sometimes we we run away from these tough conversations because we don't know uh, how the other person will receive it and all that kind of stuff. But you've got to have the tough conversation to move forward. So so you guys move forward from there. You're in first grade. When did you first get interested in athletics?
1: When I first got interested in athletics, I was probably I was probably in in first grade. Um, no, I guess it was probably a bit earlier than that. It, it would have been kindergarten because my parents told me I would I would wear my prosthesis device and I would go to school and during recess I would take my prosthesis device off. Uh, prosthesis device was was my fake arm, mm-hmm. and I would go to recess and I would play basketball. And then I would put it back on for class once recess was done. Eventually, that led to taking it off at recess and not putting it back on, which then flowed into not wearing it to school at all. Um, at At that time, I was going through all of these, I guess, emotions of noticing that I wasn't like everyone else, you know, I'm, I'm in kindergarten up into first grade and I'm, I'm realizing that, hey, I have one arm and, and not everyone does. And then, of course, at first grade was when I was bullied. So it was really brought to, to my attention. However, at recess, I quickly found that sports, um, specifically things like basketball and football, were things that I did well at um i i guess i i excelled and i think that's when things started to to happen for me in terms of of sports i was no longer that kid that was picked picked last because i looked different than everyone else at that point i was either you know a captain picking teams or i was the first one to be picked if um, you know if I wasn't a captain and so that right there just kind of propelled me into into uh, this mindset of this is what I need to do in order to fit in. Mm. Um, you know one thing I forgot to or I didn't mention discussing kind of what it's like growing up with one arm, I never wanted to be looked at as different. that that was not what I wanted to be looked at for. I didn't want to be known as, as the one-arm kid so to speak and when i played sports i i really wasn't i was known as an athlete that had one arm that was that was a difference i wasn't a one-arm athlete i was an athlete that had one arm right the athlete came first and in my mind that athlete was was what i had to become in order to be seen as as equal um and then of course just being driven um a, a lot by doubt looking back at it i was definitely driven by doubt but that is what helped and pushed me to become a standout but in my own way which was being a standout athlete
0: so one arm so you you talked about having self-doubt at a very young age um, and being a little bit uncomfortable, but how how sport kind of leveled the playing field a little bit. And yeah. Yeah. it allowed for you, it allowed for others to see you differently and allowed for you to see yourself differently. Um, so you you start playing, you were really good obviously because you were no longer on the sidelines and you were picking the teams instead of waiting for someone to pick you. But let's talk about when you really start playing uh, team sports in order to compete you know you talked about being driven by doubt and that kind of stuff but when did you start playing organized football what position did you play how did that work out i like to hear about your coaches you know i'm, I'm sure they had an influence on you on you as well the amount of coaches i had during that time um
1: growing up from you know elementary school to junior high to high school definitely was was uh, up there, there there were a lot of them. Um, some great, some not as great. But I I really remember specifically my seventh grade football coach. Um, I think this seventh grade football coach pushed me more mentally at that time in my life than I had ever been pushed before with with one with one comment. And uh, it, was, it was the first, the first practice of, um, of my seventh grade football season. It was the first time that my high school had ever had a seventh grade um, tackle football team. And we were going down the line and everyone was uh, telling what position they wanted to play. Uh, at the time, I knew I was... I knew I was skilled, but this coach had never, ever even seen me before, let alone seen me play football before. So uh, he came to me and asked me what position I wanted to play, and he he um, he's like, hey, all right, uh, what position do you want to play? And I said, I, I, I want to play the quarterback. Uh, my grandfather, um, one of my heroes, absolute role model to me was a very good quarterback in, in Philadelphia uh, growing up and and into being an adult. And I wanted to be just like him. I wanted to be the one that was in charge. I wanted to be the one that um, led the team. And I felt that based on um, kind of my sports life growing up until that point, I I was that type of, of leader, I, I guess. And he looked at me and he said, you can't play quarterback. You only have one arm. And it was, I could get fired up right now thinking about this moment, but that, that single moment in my seventh grade year absolutely stuck with me and still sticks with with me until this day. He wouldn't let me play quarterback. In fact, he wouldn't even let me play offense because if you're an offensive player, the chances of you, I'm not a big guy, so I was going to be a skilled player no matter what. But on offense, the chances of you getting the ball as a skilled player is significantly higher than if you were a skilled player on defense. So he only let me play defense. And that he moment, he wouldn't let you play offense. He wouldn't even let me play offense wow. at all at all and 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 when i say not not at all i couldn't do kick returns i couldn't do punt returns i couldn't do any of any of that and Mm -hmm. you know i I think back at, at that time i'm you know let's see i'm probably 12 maybe just turning 13 and i've got a coach a football coach not allowing me to do the thing that i know i'm great at that my friends know i'm great at because all my friends were on the team and and it wasn't just the, you know, my class of seventh graders. The the eighth graders knew what I could do. I had been growing up with them, playing and competing, and and it just it it wasn't happening, unfortunately. So, fast forward to to my my eighth grade year, and we had a new coach, shocker, um, but we had we had a new coach, and the coach came to me and he was like, hey what position do you want to play? And I said, I want to play the quarterback. He's like, okay, what position did you play last year? I said, I was was on defense, either a a cornerback or a safety. And he said, all right, we'll put you at, at quarterback. And from that moment on, it was just this, not relief in a way of now I can kind of sit back and relax, but it was one of those reliefs as, you know what? Someone's believing in me. I can't let this person down. Um, but yeah, that that coach believed in me, and that belief was was fuel. But in a different way that I had really experienced it in the past. Right. Most of my fuel came from from the doubt. Um, I love doubt, but this time it was it was a belief. It was a belief that fueled me. And um, and yeah, I would say that's kind of how how eighth grade went from there.
0: Can you talk just for a minute? You you said that it was a different type of motivation. And I'd like to, if you can, just share a little bit about the difference between how you were driven by the doubt of others versus the belief of others in you. To be
1: honest, I don't know if I've really thought about a thought about it like that. You know you often hear of motivation or people who are driven and and you hear extrinsic which means they're driven because of outward things that happen or intrinsic motivation or drive that happens from from within for me i I like to think of myself as just driven and or motivated um they I welcomed very very much welcomed extrinsic motivation um which is where that doubt came from the intrinsic side actually now thinking about it came a little bit more from from the belief right because someone believed in me and all of a sudden that motivation came from it came from within because I now can't let down that person mm-hmm. When, you know, when, when your parent believes in you, yeah, that's like, that's what parents are supposed to do. (laughs) But, but when someone who doesn't really know who you are outside of that, that one specific thing you do for that person, if they believe in you, that's like, that's when you really don't want to disappoint them. Because at least for me, the disappointment was far, far, far worse a far worse feeling than
0: someone not believing I could do something in the first place. Let's move to high school. Now it's time to play basketball. I remember you telling me a a story about that. So I I want to talk about, you know, some of the questioning that went on when you, because it didn't stop. You would think that you had proved yourself already through eighth grade with some of your friends and the thing that you've done. And then you get to high school and you've got to you know, prove yourself over again i went to the, the same school from when i was in kindergarten all the way
1: up until i graduated high school okay. so i i never went to a different school outside of um kindergarten through through 12th grade or being a senior so a lot of my friends were those that i had in elementary school um you know of course some people left some people came but i would say a a staple of the people that I was with in high school were the ones I spent uh, time with in elementary school, so that being said, a lot of the a lot of the coaches I had in high school were also people that had kind of seen me see me grown up or see me grow up over time so um, when I got into high school, I had a coach that um, just from watching me over the years, recognized that I am. A better shooter uh, I was a shooting guard mostly um, physically but I was mentally a point guard um, so physically I was a shooting guard and this coach noticed that I I shot most of my shots um, as a um, basically like a, a, an open shooter so I wasn't a dr- off-the-dribble shooter I was a catch-and-shoot type of type of player which In all reality, was it it was fine for me to be a a catch and shoot person because that just meant I had to move around a certain way to get open. I had to come off screens, um, and I didn't necessarily need the ball in my hands to be effective. Mm -hmm. But when this coach told me that I can't, that I'm not an off the dribble shooter, (laughs) it was that it was that doubt again that not just crept in but it like floodgates opened and the doubt from someone else came in and just revved up revved
0: up my my drive to 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 prove that person wrong so, so can we create a picture just for a moment i coached basketball and so i understand the difference between uh someone that goes off the dribble and someone that's a catch and shoot and you've got one arm now i want i want, I want the audience to just visualize this for a moment. So you're already in a game that is chaotic, up and down, lots of speed, lots of movement, and you have already perfected the gift of the catch and shoot. So now you're, you're being told that you can't create your own shot off the dribble, that you can't create and shoot and do all of the mechanics necessary that people with two arms do. I just want to stop long enough to for our audience to understand what how difficult it is to be an off the dribble shooter with bow hands and you fooled around and proved everybody wrong and became a two time state champion you know
1: David, when i when i look when i look back at it and when, and when i think about the coaching the coaches that i had specifically in high school basketball my my head basketball coach in in high school um on the varsity team, he's, I I believe he is officially the Arizona all-time winningest basketball coach, right? So he's not just this Joe Schmo that is coming off the streets and filling a vacant position. He was very good at what he did. Mm -hmm. And when, you know, when, when the coaches on the team were, were doubting that I could be an off the dribble shooter, I was no longer working on catching the ball and shooting. If I caught the ball, I was taking a dribble. Every single time that I could in practice or when I'm on my own putting in, you know, time in the gym, just so I could make sure that I could get the the dribble to the shooting pocket and up and through and and, and follow through on my shot so that when I was comfortable with that, I could start to add in movement to it, right? I was one of those people who loved the process. I, I still, to this day, love the process. And if you were to ask me if I was a practice player or a game player, I I will, every single time you ask, tell you that I was a practice player that also played in the game, right? Most, most practice players, or I guess the, the typical practice player, they practice, you know, they're at practice, but they don't necessarily play. They're there to give... The player as a workout. Oh man, the process that went into the practice was what I loved more than anything. The game was just like the little bit of cherry on
0: top for me. So so you 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 embrace that's interesting. And for someone that young, um, to embrace the process to and so the journey of getting better is you love that. I mean, you embrace going to practice, you know. I love there were I look I coached for thirty years, and there were guys that were really good players that I coached that had no desire to be at practice at all. <laughs> and so, so, so talk a little bit more about embracing the process, and also your um, your drive for excellence. But because you didn't just practice to prove them wrong, it's almost like you wanted to make sure they understood that you were really good at what you did.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I think that that love of the process was something that at a younger age I had no choice but to do. Um, and, and I say that because if I was competing let's say against someone with, with two arms, they could they could likely be a better dribbler than than I could if we both put in, let's say an hour of practice every day, just because they have more options, right? They can dribble with their right hand. They can dribble with their left hand. They can dribble between their legs in both directions, a certain way at a certain speed. And no matter how I looked at it, if I was going to be as good of dribbler as that person or, or better, I had to put in the extra work. And I think that extra work was, it it just started to happen because I loved the idea of proving someone wrong. And I loved the idea of being an athlete before I was a a person with one arm. And that, so that mindset carried over into, you know, into junior high sports and, and into high school sports. And, I started to, as I matured in my, and I guess in my mind, I started to identify that I loved that process of, of working. I wasn't necessarily competing against everyone else. I was competing against myself in order to prove, in order to prove people wrong. And that is, that's what really made me fall in love with that process. And it, it's, it's still something that I have to deal with, deal with today. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's significantly more difficult to compete against yourself than it is to compete against other people, right? So uh, an example of that, um, when you are, let's say you're out running a mile and you clock a time of, let's say, five minutes. If you ran that exact same mile, but you ran it against someone who oftentimes runs a 4:30 mile i would almost guarantee you that you will get a better time it's just human nature to to compete against something or someone when when you're comp- when you're trying to compete against yourself you're becoming that much stronger and for me, that competition against myself, because it was more difficult, is what I, th- I thrived off of and, and what I loved. And also in the back of my mind, I, I carried this thought of knowing if I can beat myself, I can, I can beat any, anything that comes my way. Well, freshman year of, of high school, we actually had someone um, from Texas came in and, and moved in or moved uh, to Arizona. So he was coming to our high school and I met him at football camp going into freshman year. And I immediately bonded with him. And the only position he ever knew and ever wanted to do was, was quarterback. So I was like, okay, well I could come in here and, and I could, you know, I could play quarterback against this guy, or I could do something that I was also good at, which was have the ball in my hands in a different way, and, and you know, and I could help out that way. So, I decided, hey, this guy's great. I'm I'm going to be friends with him. He's going to go out for quarterback. I'm going to go out for wide receiver, and I'm going to just be this one-two punch type type um, player with him. Fortunately, at, at the time we had a, a, a new coach, and this coach, uh, you know, I was in high school now, so there was a new coach. And this coach asked me what I wanted to do. And I was like, I want to be a, a receiver. This coach was also a receiver um, in high school uh, in the state of Arizona previous and had a whole bunch of different records. And he looked at me and he said, do you think you're fast? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty fast. And he said, can you catch the ball? And I said, yeah, I can catch the ball. And he said, okay. And, you know, again, it was that that belief or that, confidence he had in me to if that's what I wanted to do he wasn't going to tell me he wasn't going to tell me no so fast forward um you know a a couple years later and I'm a senior in high school and um fortunately I was still a I was still a wide receiver um I ended up being an an all-state wide receiver um and uh and yeah I, I guess that was it it was you know someone thinks oh this guy's got one arm like what what is he doing at the at the wide receiver position you have to use two hands to catch the ball um i heard it I, trust me i heard those things all the, all the time and i was like thirsting for people to make comments like that just because it made me want to work harder it made me want to catch more balls and maybe wanted to run faster farther and score more touchdowns. And um, again, fortunately, when I
0: got into high school, I had coaches that believed I could do that. You know, we talk about diversity nowadays in this world. And this is a a great example of what happens when you actually give people a chance, when you actually, when you believe, when you believe in them and you don't set the limits on them, you let them set their own limits. And for you, you didn't have a limit um it it's funny it's you know
1: yes I I think I think there's there's definitely a lot of truth to that most of the time those limits are set by ourselves right um you know that I know that almost everyone knows that those limits are set by ourselves and if we can have the mindset to essentially turn off those those limitations we have the ability to go so much further than than most people can imagine just because we're able to turn off that um turn off that way of thinking. Um I, I recently read a book by by David Goggins. Um for those who don't know David Goggins he's a he's a, a, a ex-navy SEAL, re- retired Navy SEAL, but where he got a lot of his his fame was from being an ultra marathoner and he he called it turning off the governor like cars have governors that only allow you to go x amount of miles per hour at a given moment well limitations are our mind's limitations are essentially that governor for our bodies and if we can turn that off or learn to look past it those limitations just become a, a mere afterthought. And soon enough, we are far beyond where we ever imagined we could be. And more importantly, at least for me, much further um, beyond where where everyone else saw we, you know, thought we could be.
0: Um, so you, you graduate from high school with your classmates. I'm assuming you had the same drive and passion in the classroom that you had on the on the athletic field, because right or should I not assume that? <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> l- looking back
1: at it, I- I'm you know I- I'm I'm definitely an adult now, and looking back at it, I wish I would have had the same drive in the classroom that I did uh, on on the you know out in sports. Um, I I didn't, I didn't, and it's not that. I had no drive because, of course, I knew that I had to have certain grades in order to either get to college or to, in fact, play the sport, the sports that I wanted to. So I did fine, but it was it was a mere afterthought to me. But now that I'm older and I realized what I would have missed, I would say that that hunger or that thirst for learning is is now ever present. And I definitely love, I love to learn um, about anything, whether it's the stock market, whether it's um, the, the sneaker industry, whether it is how certain coaches look at their given sport and how they fine tune their coaching t- to specific athletes within their, their sport. I just send it all my way because I'm going to try to take it all in and learn as much as I can because I now know that it, it's not all about sport in life. Um, a lot of it could be for for a lot of people, but for me, sports was really just um, a small portion of, of who
0: I actually am. As we close out this portion of the podcast, because when we come back, we'll Talk a little bit about your experience at Nike and and some of your college experience and the jobs you had there. Um, but before we do that, is there anything else that you would like to to leave with the audience before we come back and find out how you are changing the world? You know, I I, I don't know if there's anything
1: else that um, that I need to to touch on uh, again other than maybe saying how much um, having the right people around you matter and how much, you know, again, those, those partnerships can take you out of a dark spot. They can give you that extra little oomph um, that allows you to persevere just a little bit longer. They can keep you grounded and they can keep your your perspective clean and clear. And if you can have all of those things uh, again, there's just no telling what you can accomplish. Um, f- for me, it was, you know, and we'll get into this. For me, it was uh, accomplishing my, my dream job of, of working at Nike. Um, but it's it's also a bit more than that of being able to just inspire that one person. And I think having those, having the right people around you, um, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be 50. It, it could be that one right person around you can truly make a difference in your life. And that difference can in turn make a, a difference in someone else's life. And if we continue to do that, um, man, this world
0: could be a really great place. A really, really great place. But what a, what a great way to, to end this portion of the podcast to know that you don't have to make the journey by yourself. And that there are people there to support you and help you uh, to deal with whatever you have to deal with. We'll be right back after this break. That's Richard Ramsey, my guest this time on Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast. What a great reminder about the power of human connection in helping us move beyond adversity to fulfilling our purpose. We'll get back to part two in just a minute. You know, not everyone will want to partner with us. In the way that Richard just described, for reasons we don't always understand, some people seem intent on stirring up fear, suspicion and anger. How we respond in these situations was something I discussed with Arnold Michaelis back in season one. This ex-skinhead challenged us not to react as the cancel culture would have us do.
2: I really think it's crucial that we do everything as human beings in a trauma-informed way, which means when someone is acting horribly, rather than say what's wrong with you, we say what happened to you. Hmm. And we understand that that behavior stems from suffering. Everybody does suffer in one way or another, in in one part of their lives or another. And when we have a, a healthy means of processing our pain, that's when we can stop from trans stop ourselves from transferring it to other people. It, if, if we remind ourselves when someone's acting like that, they're doing it because they're suffering, that helps us respond to their aggression with compassion. And that is, I, I work with a lot of veterans when I do intervention work. I have a dear friend named Chris Buckley who was uh, an imperial nighthawk in the Ku Klux Klan when I met him and an army veteran and, and a methamphetamine addict. And I working with Chris, I had to start thinking like tactically, thinking like in, in military terms. And so my objective was was to, to reach him and let him know there's a better way to live his life. Um, I'm a big dude. Like people are afraid of me because I'm like, I'm a big guy. And like, like Chris is a little guy. And it would have been completely feasible for me to like physically dominate him and to say, hey, you're going to change your ways. But the, the fact is, you're never going to beat the, the race racism out of someone. You're never going to mm. punish the hate out of someone. Like you said, David, the only way to do that is to show them what love looks like and show them what awaits them. If, if they can understand that they, they have a, just like a substance abuse issue, that they have a problem and they need help getting over it, and, and that most importantly, a better place awaits them if they put in the work to do that.
0: That's Arno Michaelis, an ex skinhead, who says that those who responded to his hatred with love actually saved his life. Be sure to check out Arno's story on season one, episode eight. It's called The Transformation of a Skinhead. Now let's get back to my conversation with Richard Ramsey. Let's get get to Nike. As an eight year old, you, you wanted to work for Nike, that has always been your goal and You're doing that now, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the the podcast, you know, you recently um, Nike recently released uh, a hands is it called hands free right a hands free hands free shoe shoe. a Nike shoe, and I know you you had a lot to do with that. so let's talk a little bit about your experience at Nike. I called you a, a disruptor in a in a great way in that you're you're making change in society and literally around the world with with an with an organization like Nike. So your dream came true. How did that happen? Share that with us and and what you do now.
1: Yeah, so this uh this dream of of making shoes for Nike all stemmed. I was I was eight. Um it was and it was early 1996, probably like January or so, maybe February. And my, my dad got me this pair of shoes, a pair of Nike shoes. It was the, the shake and destruct. Um, and, uh, they didn't fit very well. I have really narrow feet and these shoes were just wider. So I wanted to wear these shoes that my dad got me so bad, but I, I just felt like they were slopping around on my, on my feet. So, I set off on this goal of how can I make these tight to my foot. I of course went through the let's put on three, four pairs of socks. Let's put on, you know, let's tape tape around the shoes like they're spats for football. Um, you you name it. I was I was trying it. I couldn't get the laces tight tight enough, so I ended up taking this basically really wide rubber band, like rubber gasket, I guess. It wasn't even a rubber band, it was more of a rubber, rubber <laughs> gasket. And I put it around the the mid, my midfoot, like the center of my foot, and it just held the shoe tight enough that it was comfortable to wear. And I didn't feel like I was losing speed or athleticism uh, based on wearing this pair of shoes. Fast forward, I, I went to college at, at Arizona State. And I studied something called kinesiology. Kinesiology is, uh, I guess, more known as sports science, sports mm-hmm. and, and uh, exercise science. My whole thought process was, if I want to make shoes that are good for basketball or good for sports, I better learn how the body is naturally supposed to perform in mm-hmm. sports with the thinking of, I want to make a shoe that's an extension of the body and not an addition to the body. Hmm. Those shoes my dad got me—they were an addition to my body. They didn't work very well with me. They, you know, there was so much give and so much room that it just wasn't one to one. I want to make product that in in fact is one to one. Hmm. So I, during college, I started working at uh, the Tempe Factory Store actually, and. I was just a a normal associate out on the floor helping helping customers going in the back doing back stock kind of shipping and receiving it, um shipping and receiving and again that thought process of loving the loving the process again was if I am wanting to work at Nike corporate I better start now mm-hmm. so I can start understanding the culture so I can start understanding the mission the vision so i can start understanding everything nike and in doing so i'll then just graduate i'll move up to portland oregon or beaverton oregon and i'll i'll, I'll get a job at nike cuz that's what you do you go to school you get a job at, at least that's what that's what i thought <laughs> um, i i of course i i graduated uh, i moved up to to oregon didn't know anyone um i didn't get a job at nike right away um you know, of course, there are twenty thousand people that want the exact same position that I wanted, and um, uh, unfortunately, I
0: wasn't—I uh, wasn't one of the few that get them right out of college. So, well, can, can we talk about? Can we talk about that just for a minute? Because as, yeah. as a coach, I remember one of the most difficult things for me in high school was making cuts and telling a young man, you know what? You know, and and it's not because you're not a good kid or anything. It may not have been a right fit or whatever. Um, What was that like getting cut from that? I mean, that's like getting a cut.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, two things. When you lose, you learn. Mm -hmm. And getting cut just did nothing to me but say, Nike doubts that I can do this. And that that doubt or those rejection letters, uh, all 33 of them that I received, You have the Um,
3: number.
1: (laughs) Oh, I have the number. They're in a binder. And and Mm -hmm. that that rejection pile that I have was nothing more than fuel to the fire. Um, I I essentially again looking back at it, I love it now more than I did then. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. It was it sucked. I didn't want to have to you know see that. Unfortunately, we've selected a different candidate over and over and over, but but again, the the process of trying to achieve that excellence or, or my goal of working at Nike was something that I, I loved. So essentially, I eventually got a job at, at a retail again, a Nike retail store. And I went into that job thinking, there is no one in this entire store that's going to outwork me. Because in order for me to get to that next level, I need to set myself apart. And I, if that means I've got to work my way up from the mailroom, then I'm going to work my way up from the mailroom. So it was a show up every day early. It was stay late every day. Mm -hmm. It was volunteer for this part of the store, volunteer for that part of the store. Um, It was volunteering for overnights. And I think one of the one of the cool things of of my story is there was a time it was about a nine a nine month period. I was starting work at eight thirty p.m. on Sunday. I was working all night till five thirty a.m. At five thirty a.m. I would get off of work and I would go to the to the gym. I'd play basketball. I'd get in some basketball workouts. I'd meet some other individuals that were playing. And at about 8 o'clock, I would leave, I'd go home, and I'd sleep from like 8.30 to 10.30, maybe 8.30 to 11. And I'd wake up, and I'd go back to to campus or WHQ World Headquarters, and I would volunteer. And I would basically just say, hey, what can I do to learn? And that would take me till about 6 o'clock at night. I'd go to the gym, play some basketball, build more relationships until eight o'clock. I'd shower, I'd go to work. And I did that every single day during the week. I was probably at that time sleeping 20 hours a week and I was learning every day. So again, it was that process of how am I going to get myself better, prepare for the opportunity. And when the opportunity comes, how do I how do I take it uh, wow. and run with it? Um, and fortunately, the opportunity came uh, May 24th, uh, May 23rd, technically of, of 2013. Uh, I accepted the job May 24th, 2013.
0: Wow. A couple a couple of things stand out about you, your your character and your drive. One is it goes back to when you were first doubted yeah. and, um, and you've taken doubt personally, ever since then, in everything. And when you got those 33 reminders of doubt, that just added to your drive because you were destined in your mind to work at Nike. And you didn't care how you had to get there. Um, you were involved in menial things that some maybe didn't think would matter. But you kept talking about learning the culture and learning learning the business and seeing how this that you were doing was going to be part of is part of the Nike corporation. Um, and again, that's a different mindset. That's a different perspective. I mean, but you always seem to have your goal dangling, dangling around out there. So you, you got your job at Nike and, um, what was next? Yeah. Um, I called my mom, I cried and
1: then it was business from, from there on out. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I started. I started on campus June tenth uh, of two thousand and thirteen. Uh, I'll still never forget the day. Um, and uh, you know, from that moment on, it, it wasn't how can I get to Nike. It was how can I make Nike better. Um, how can I do this for Nike? How can how can I utilize Nike to make a difference? Um, a couple of months after I started, I, I had the absolute. Uh, Fortune to meet someone um, whose name is Toby Hatfield. Um, for those who don't know Toby, he's got a he's got an older brother named Tinker Hatfield, who is the one um, credited to designing the Jordan Three all the way to the the twenty three, and still dabbles here and there. When I was growing up, like Toby and Tinker were, those were big deals for me. Um, I, I was a big sneaker guy and. When I thought about sneakers, that uh, Toby and Tinker were, you know, at the forefront of that, along with Phil Knight and Michael Jordan, right? right? So when I when I got to to campus and I was able to connect with Toby for the first time, it was just this like, holy moly, I'm 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 living a I'm living a dream kind of deal. So Toby Hatfield um, is someone that I've looked up to. For for a couple of reasons, a he's he's such a brilliant mind. He creates these Nike technologies that everyone knows and loves, like Nike Free, like the Special Forces boot. Um, the list goes on. Um, but more than that, he's he's a he's an amazing person. I I met him and I told him that I had some couple of crazy ideas to make. Footwear for amputees to play basketball in. Mm. At the time, I was I was part of an organ or I'm part of an organization called Amp One Basketball, and um, we're stand up amputee basketball players. So whether you have one arm, whether you have one leg, we play stand up, mm-hmm. quote unquote, able body basketball. Right. And I wanted to figure out how I can make a a, a shoe that worked better with a prosthetic leg. So I sat down with Toby. We started talking about all these different ideas, um, and he mentioned to me at the time that he was working on something um, for for people with with a disability. And he asked if I w- would be interested in helping him. Um, of course, I was. I was all over that. That, I mean, that's meshing things that I love in life. It's it's basketball it's nike and it's it's being kind of being a a light for people and it's it's finding ways to better people's lives um and so i I jumped in it um full force it was a a, a side job i was doing it you know 5 a.m i was doing it 9 p.m it it didn't matter i was doing it outside of my daily.
0: so you had you had daily work that you were doing and then you had a side job at Nike as part of what you were doing
1: <laughs> yeah uh, yes side side project sounded
0: uh, sounds a little nicer but, but yeah. a, side, a side project we'll go with that yeah
1: it was it was definitely um it was definitely an, another job within my job but again when you you know when you love what you do and you know this David but when you love what you do like it hardly feels like work so that's kind of where I was. I I was I was you know newly married at the time and I didn't have any children and you know doing this stuff was what I did. So so yeah, we started working on that and that shoe that we were working on became what is now known as FlyEase. And FlyEase is a platform or a technology at Nike that focuses on easy on, easy off. Mm -hmm. So how you enter the shoe, how you take your foot out of the shoe, easy open, easy close. How do you secure it to your foot or unsecure it and uh, adjustability. And that shoe launched in 2015 and it has since propelled us to create a specific category within innovation that is, that is now slightly different, but now you know we basically focus on how can we make product that is universally designed, mm. right? So earlier you, you were mentioning you're you're working with someone to create some thought process behind universally designed. That's what we're trying to do with shoes. We want to allow access for everyone that needs shoes in order to to put them on, whether they've got no hands, one finger. Maybe they don't have any dexterity in their hands. Maybe it's, you know, you name it. We want to make sure that our product is universally designed
3: so everyone has access. There's more to come in part three of David's conversation with Richard Ramsey in just a minute. You can listen to David's own story when you download Getting Undressed From Paralysis to Purpose, the audiobook, narrated by the author himself. Here is a sample from chapter eight where David recalls his first experience coaching basketball with the Vic Taney Warriors, a Midwestern AAU team with a winning tradition. Working with the players that summer, he discovered a passion and purpose that would, in time, set his career
0: on a new course. AAU was no joke, and life isn't either. In life, like in basketball, you're judged by how well you can get the job done. And if you can't, they'll find someone else who can and that summer, every player pushed me too. Besides making me a better coach, every player volunteered to literally push me in my wheelchair and to talk with me, not because they were told to, but because they wanted to learn from me. I impressed upon each one of them that even if they didn't think they could do something on the basketball court or in life, I knew they could. The moment they became satisfied was the moment someone was ready to supplant them. So they had to be aggressive and be driven by the next play. They couldn't be afraid of making mistakes. Everyone, and I mean everyone, had something to offer the team and the world, if even just a handshake, a conversation, a smile, or a little coaching about the full-court press. The sooner they realized that, the sooner they could make themselves and the world better than the day before. It was in those moments that I began to realize that, how much of a positive impact I could have on those around me. Coaching AAU, and coaching that group of guys in particular, was a privilege in every sense of the word. It brought me into contact with some of the best coaches and basketball programs in the country. I was just getting my feet wet with coaching, and now I wanted full immersion. I would be all in. I don't like doing anything 50%, or 75%, or 90%. If something was worthy of my time and energy, I would give it all my attention and effort. It wasn't success that motivated me, but being significant inspired every word and action I took. I wanted people to respect me for who I was, not for what I'd done or because I was in a wheelchair. When you're part of something where you feel like you're serving a purpose greater than yourself, that's the ultimate reward. That's
3: David Cooks narrating his book, Getting Undressed, From Paralysis to Purpose. It's now available to purchase wherever audiobooks are sold. Now, let's get back to part three of David's conversation with his guest, Richard Ramsey.
0: What's next for you? I mean, you are, um, this is trailblazer stuff. Like you said, it's a whole different brand within the brand of Nike. And um, what do you see on the horizon? Sure. Man,
1: that's a that's a great question. I'm never going to leave the space of accessibility, whether my job title is there or not. That's just that's a passion for me. So I, I'm never going to leave that space. Um, I'm I'm now starting to work uh, on on Michael Jordan footwear. So the Jordan brand footwear. So that's kind of where where my journey, at least in Nike, is taking me but by working working on that is that what what does that actually mean it's 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 a little bit less hands-free stuff i specifically now work with athletes to make product for for athletes so um you know whether it's mj himself or whether it's jason tatum or another jordan brand athlete um that's kind of where my my product my nike life product goes to now
0: okay
1: um when i think about when I think about the future, it, it always, always, always comes back to, um, to leading the future. Um, mm. I want to make sure that I can be a light, be an inspiration, be, be a guidance to the younger generation to be forward thinkers and to take Nike and the product we do to the next level. Now, whether that means next level for our, our signed athletes, LeBron, you know, so on and so on, or to the athletes that we, or to the consumers that we consider athletes in terms of making product that everyone can wear, um, whether it's easy to put on or easy to to close, I want to lead that thinking of enough is never enough. Mm. Um, good enough is never good enough it's there's always going to be room for improvement and when you break a guinness book of world records record there's there's always going to be room for improvement and i want to make sure that i can help instill that to to the future whether that's you know people here at work or whether that's people in high school or whether that's you know elementary kids i want to make sure that they understand that there is always
0: something greater. I'm going to read a couple of your quotes here. Fail forward. There really are no failures, only success and learning. Um,
1: I have, I have a, um, now a a five-year-old son and a almost three-year-old little girl. And part of the thing that i'm teaching both of them is that there are two choices in life you you win or you learn you don't necessarily lose and i think most people when they fail at something they consider it losing and no one no one likes to no one likes to lose so they just they stop doing it what i i have realized over the years is that if you truly want to be your best self if you truly want to take your mental side of of the way you're doing things and you want to grow you need to look back at those mistakes and you and you need to learn from them because you don't want to make that same mistake twice if you are doing that you're technically not losing you are getting better and when you are getting better you are winning so the two options actually of you either win or you learn those like those actually are are in in, in fact the same thing where you're just winning every single bit of the, the time and you're taking that uh, experience and you're learning from it to become your best self for that next time or for a future endeavor or for whatever opportunity
0: life brings your way or challenge that life brings your way. Um, let's do another quote. I'm telling what see what see what you think about that. You didn't know I'd have quotes for you today, did you? No, I didn't I didn't but I I'm, I'm okay with it. <laughs> All right here we go. Life will be full of obstacles. The most calming thing to know is that God is there? He is real, and His love for you is beyond comprehension.
1: Um, we, you mentioned you mentioned partners partnerships as as one of the the three topics of of the podcast, and I, I think partnership in its absolute purest form is in fact the relationship that you can have with, with God or with the Lord. My parents and my friends and my families were, were so amazing in my, in, in being a partner to me over the, over the years, without, without question. They all gave me strength in a different form at a different point in, in my life and, and still do so, but the the strength they give versus the strength I receive from from the Lord, um, definitely it definitely doesn't co- compare. And I think you know we talk about what you can do if you turn off off that mindset of or that governed mindset of I can't do this. If that is if that's something that that you can comprehend. One thing I guess that I am never fully able to comprehend is truly how much that partnership with, with God allows me to do everything that I do. And, and I truly mean that from the moment I wake up and I open my eyes or from the moment I wake up and I take a breath of air, that is, that's God allowing me to do so. I mean, simple, simplest form is that. That is, that is his grace, that is his mercy. And I think for, for me, the thought of just how big and how great he is encompasses
0: everything, everything that I do. You know, everybody's journey from paralysis to purpose takes on different forms and some some people have a faith component, some don't. And and that's one of the reasons if faith is a part of your journey, we want to hear about it. And it and it doesn't have to be a faith that I necessarily agree with. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's what helps you to become the best version of yourself. And so absolutely. Um, I, I think that you are absolutely correct that when when you when you can live for a purpose greater and bigger than yourself, it puts all of your situations into their proper space. And into their proper size, and it does help okay. you help you to move forward with that. Yeah. Before I I end this podcast today, um, let me just say this has been rewarding for me uh, to hear your to hear your story and your perspective. Um, you are leading from the future, and and that's what's important. Um, and your passion and compassion. Uh, for people is, is obvious. And so I want to thank you for that. Um, Any parting words you you would have something that you'd like to to leave them with? I I think the, the big thing
1: is you will fail in life at times. um, But the ones who, the ones who persevere uh, and the ones who don't accept that failure or learn from that failure are the ones that tend to, Go farther, go faster, and um, I think it was it was Phil Knight that said this in a in an interview. He said the only time you the only time you cannot fail is the last time you try, and I think that really stuck with me because it it just goes to show, failing failing's okay. Failing is how we grow. It's how we learn. It's how we get better, and. If you are learning, growing, and getting better every single day, you're gonna, you're just gonna be able to tackle the world in anything you want to
0: do. Fantastic.
1: Now, how do people get a hold of you? You know the the best way to to find me is just search "One Arm Kid." O n e a r m k i d. I know I'm not a kid any longer, but that's what people called me growing up, and it kind of just stuck. So. Uh I, I kept it. But one more kid, I, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, um, you name it, I'm I'm probably
0: there. So feel free to reach out. I love to connect with everyone. Fantastic. Well, Richard, thank you. I mean, man, this has been uh, I know you're busy. I mean, you're designing shoes and stuff, man. I mean, what the heck? Um thank you for taking the time. It was this was really good. This is really good. This this is awesome. Really. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to the future. Yeah. Okay. Hey, this is David Cooks reminding you until next time on Paralysis to Purpose that your ability to endure is always greater than your willingness to endure. You can do anything you put your mind to. Thanks for
3: tuning in to Paralysis to Purpose. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Paralysis to Purpose on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. To purchase his book, visit davidcookspeaks.com. Be sure to tune in next time for more inspiring conversations with David Cooks.
0: And so forgiveness for me is like, okay, it's going to allow me to move forward in my life by forgiving this person, even if they say, hey, I don't, I don't receive it. You know and i think that's why it's more important for me the person that's forgiving rather than the other person
3: next time on paralysis to purpose chris
0: singleton is a speaker he is a best-selling author his story is amazing the reward for me is not constantly thinking about how my mother was taken away every single day right the reward for me is 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 now looking at a young white male and not saying hey he's probably just like the person that took my mom away right? Because if you don't forgive, in some instances, you associate everybody with one experience you had. Paralysis to purpose.